And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we do truly rejoice in the truth that you are true and kind. That you are our faithful God. Heavenly Father, it is in that faithfulness that we rejoice even as we gather here this morning. It is in Christ alone that we come boldly before you. There are many burdens among us, many fears that are gripping our hearts. Many things that would distract us and pull our attention away. And yet, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work through your word this morning. That we would focus. That we would hear the truth that you have for us. That through your word, that you would challenge us and change us for your glory. That you would do a mighty work in Altoona Regular Baptist Church this morning through the word of God. Pray that you would give me boldness and authority to preach with clarity as I proclaim your truth. That your name alone may be lifted high. For you, Lord, are good and faithful. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this past week, my kids all had their first full week of school. It's the first year we actually have all four kids in school. Clinton and Judah started third grade. Avery started first grade, and our youngest, Theodore, completed his first full week of kindergarten. And with all of that going on, I spent the better part of the last few weeks kind of in shock, wondering where the time has gone. You see, it was 15 years ago that I walked into this building for the first time. I was sitting right over there. I had flown up from South Carolina to visit a girl that I had met at camp that summer. I stayed here for, I think it was a week over the new year. That's 15 years ago. It was 11 years ago, right here in this very room, that I married that same girl, the love of my life, Krista Matson. It was a little over eight years ago that Krista and I moved from Indianapolis with a set of two-month-old twins. And I stood here for the first time as your brand new and way over his head, assistant pastor. It was a little over four years ago that I was voted in as senior pastor of Altoona Regular Baptist Church. Time flies. I can't help even as I, as I sit here these last few weeks and I just I marvel how quickly time has gone by, how quickly my kids are growing up. I can't help but, but look back and wonder, if I could go back and do some things different, what would I do differently? I don't know that I would do a lot differently, because the reality is that everything that I have done has led me to where I am today. God is good, and my life has been exceedingly blessed. Regardless of what my life has looked like, God is good. But one thing I know that I would do different is to be more present and more purposeful. 
You see, to live understanding the brevity of life, to live understanding the value of time, would be to live with purpose and with passion. It would be to take every moment in, to be fully aware of the privilege of this moment, of the time that is ticking away, and not to waste a single breath. Over the last several weeks, as as college has gotten started, we've had several freshmen joining us. In fact, we have several with us even today. And I look back at my college years with kind of the same regret. I wish I would have been more purposeful, more present in those moments. So I plead with you college students to, to jump into college life as a college student. Listen, take good notes in class, build deep and lasting friendships. Take full advantage of the resources and the opportunities that are afforded to you at college. This is a time in life unlike any other. Take advantage of these moments. Don't waste them. Find a good church to get plugged into. I know a great one. Find a good church to get plugged into, to serve and to grow. Because these four years ahead of you might seem so long right now. But the reality is they're going to fly by before you know it. As we turn our attention to 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11 this morning, Peter has a very similar message for his readers. You see, the reality is that time is short And so here Peter pleads with us to think clearly and to live purposely for the glory of God. Take advantage of the opportunities that we have. Live purposefully in this moment with eyes towards eternity. And so this morning here, In 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11, Peter is going to continue to plead with us to have urgency, to have passion, and to have purpose. Have urgency, have passion, and have purpose. The first thing we see at the beginning of verse 7 is a call to urgency. Peter begins here, but the end of all things is at hand. In fact, Peter is picking up right where he left off. If you remember where we were last week in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, we're there in those verses. Peter reminded us of the context in which we are living. This life is lived in the context of eternity, and that means that death is not the end. This life has meaning for eternity, leading to either condemnation or salvation. If you remember last week, that was 1 Peter 4, verses 5 to 6. That truth adds weight and meaning to life here and now. What you do here and now matters for eternity. This life is not the end. Yet here, Peter picks up right where he left off, and he adds not only weight and meaning to life in the context of eternity, but here he adds urgency as well. Not only is this life lived in the context of eternity, but brothers and sisters, the end is at hand. The end is at hand. 
Eternity is even closer than you can imagine. The idea here is really one of imminence. Imminence. Something that could happen at any moment. I don't know if we have any soccer players here. I grew up playing the sport of soccer. But soccer is a somewhat strange sport in that you never really know when the game is going to end. Maybe a, a few months ago, maybe you watched the World Cup. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, if you ever watched soccer. But a soccer game is 90 minutes long. There's one halftime in the middle, and there's no timeouts. If there's an injury, if there's a fight, if, if something else happens to stop the play, the clock doesn't stop. For 90 minutes, the clock just goes. Instead of stopping the clock, what the referee does is he keeps track on his watch of how much time is passing, not being used to play soccer, how much time the stoppage has played, the game has stopped, and then what he does is he adds that onto the end of the game. So that even though a soccer game is 90 minutes long, it might go 95 minutes because he has added that extra five minutes to the end. It's called stoppage time. But as I mentioned, it's the referee who keeps track of the time. So as a player or a fan, you don't really know exactly when the game is going to end. As soon as the clock hits 90 minutes, you don't know. Is there an extra two minutes? Five minutes? I saw a game the other day where there was an extra eight minutes added on to the end of the game. You don't know. So once the clock hits 90 minutes, at any moment that whistle could blow. You can imagine how that adds urgency to every single possession. It's one thing to look up to the clock and see, all right, 85 minutes, I've got five minutes left. It's another thing to look up and see 91 minutes and not know, do I have 10 seconds or do I have five minutes? Every possession is urgent at that point in the game. In fact, you'll often see the losing team take desperate measures, desperate chances, because they know the end of the game is at hand. At any moment, that whistle could blow. That is the idea of eminence. No warning. Nothing else to be accomplished. Just an imminent sense of the looming end that could come at any moment. The Bible speaks often of Jesus' return in this way, coming in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the end is nigh? We are living in the last days, in the stoppage time, if you will, of history. The clock has hit 90 minutes, and we don't know when the whistle's going to blow. At any moment, Jesus could come back for his church, inaugurating the end of all things. You see, the reality of eternity which Peter touched on last week, the reality of eternity and in that eternity, either condemnation or salvation, that should grab your attention. 
The fact that this life is lived in a context of eternity, that should grab your attention, and yet what we see this morning, the imminence of the end, that should shock you into action. Just as the clock at the end of a game that is winding down adds weight to the urgency of every move, so the imminence of Jesus' return should add urgency to your life and witness, Christian. The end of all things is at hand. So let me ask you, are you living as if you have all the time in the world, or are you living like life could end at, like like the end of all things is at hand? Do you realize the urgency of this moment? In fact, ask yourself, how might your life look different if you took serious Peter's warning here in 1 Peter 4, 7? What does a life look like that is lived in the reality that the end of all things is at hand? What does it look like to live like the end is truly nigh? In fact, that's exactly the point that Peter goes on to make here at the end of verse 7. Building on this fact that the end of all things truly is at hand. Building on that truth of the imminence of the end, Peter here now challenges his readers to live in that reality. Live like the end is nigh. Peter has set the stage masterfully here. The stakes are high, the urgency is real, and there is great expectation as we move toward the application portion of this passage of Scripture that that something great is coming. The end is at hand. Judgment or salvation hang in the balance. Therefore, what, Peter? What do you want us to do? There's almost an expectation in the the building drama of this passage that that there's some radical call to action that is coming. And yet, almost shockingly, Peter doesn't call for some radical reaction. He simply calls for faithful Christian living. Have urgency, secondly. Have passion. We're going to work our way through these four practical applications that Peter gives here. Since the end is at hand, what should I do? There's four practical applications. And I think you're going to be surprised at just how elementary they are to the Christian life. And yet at the same time, I think that's part of the point that Peter is making. As he calls his readers to faithful endurance, He wants them to see that a faithful Christian life is a powerful witness in the midst of a dark and a hostile world. These things might sound simple to us, but in reality, the faithful Christian life is radical to the world around us. So be faithful, and in that simple faithfulness to Christ, testify to your hope. Is that really not the whole message of Peter? That that yes, the end is at hand. 
But understand that you are exiles in this world, so be faithful to where your hope really lies. Be faithful to Christ and that coming kingdom of which you are a citizen. Cling to that hope. Because the end is at hand. So as I mentioned, Peter here gives four practical applications. He guides us to live right in the context of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Those four applications are to pray, to love, to show hospitality, and to serve. So we're going to see as we work our way through these passages. Pray, love, show hospitality, and serve. First, pray with expectation. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Serious and watchful. The word serious carries the idea of think right. Don't, don't, don't see this as something silly as a joke. I don't know if you've ever been to, to a, in a situation where someone's just joking and you're like, this is not funny. You need to take this seriously. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is not a joke. Take this seriously. Let this add weight to your prayers. Pray with passion and purpose because the end of all things is at hand. Think rightly as you come to prayer. And yet stacked on that idea of a serious prayer is also the call to be watchful. Which really carries the idea of soberness. Thinking clearly, not fuzzy. So think right and think clear in the context in which you're living. Things might be crazy around you. The world is falling apart. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, think right and think clear. A few years ago, there was a Geico commercial. And this commercial opened in a field where four friends were desperately running, looking for a place to hide from someone who was chasing them. As they run up out of a cornfield in, towards the homestead, one of the four friends offered, well, why don't we run and hide in the attic? And another one throws up, well, why don't we go hide in the basement? Finally, one of the characters asked, why can't we just get in the running car and leave? Eventually, they choose to hide in an old garage behind a bunch of chainsaws. The commercial is making fun of an old scary movie cliche that characters in scary movies almost always make terrible decisions that make things much worse. In the weight of the moment, they make awful decisions and, and Peter is calling for the exact opposite here. The eminence of the end should not cause us to shoot off into chaotic frenzy. You should not be controlled by desperation and fear, but be controlled by hope. Let the eminence of the end add urgency, but it's a controlled and a purposeful urgency. Specifically, he takes these two words, serious and watchful, and applies them to your prayers. Pray serious and watchful prayers. Pray with purpose and clarity. 
For the Christian, the reality of the imminence of the end should not fill us with desperation and fear. It must not cause us to shrink back and fear, but to step up in hope. We pray for God's will to be done. We pray for his kingdom to come. We pray to that end and we live with that hope. This mindset of prayer, it helps us to stay focused on the gospel. To stand firm in the faith. As everything around us seems to be crumbling, as the world is falling apart. Our prayers are not filled with desperation. They're not filled with hopelessness and fear. Our prayers are filled with clear gospel thinking. They're filled with hope as they cling to the promises of God. We don't fear the end of this age. We pray, may your kingdom come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray to that end, looking to that glorious hope. This mindset in prayer keeps us grounded and hopeful, even in the urgency of the moment. So because the end is near, think clearly and pray boldly all the more. Not only pray, but also love. Pray pray with expectation. Love with commitment. Verse 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. The next response that Peter here calls for is fervent love. I think it's important to note right here at the beginning that that phrase, above all, above all things, have fervent love. That above all, Peter's not here ranking love as more important than prayer. He's not saying pray, yes, but but more importantly, love. Rather, what he's doing, you'll, you'll note in the passage, in the flow of the passage, that there is a clear shift in topic here. Peter is moving from faithfulness in your private life, prayer, to faithfulness in your public life, love, hospitality, service. The next three topics, love, hospitality, and service, they all include the phrase, if you were to work through them, you would notice they all include the phrase either for or to one another. He's dealing with how you deal with one another in this context. The imminence of the end must impact not only your private faith, your prayer life, your hope, but it must also impact your public life, how you interact with one another. And that impact is primarily summed up in one word, love. That's what Peter means here. Above all, in everything. Loving shows up in your hospitality. Loving shows up in your service. And everything else that Peter's going to go on to mention, love permeates all of that. But just generally to start out, have fervent love. It's not a love that wavers. 
It's a love that is eager and faithful. A love that is committed. In fact, the commitment of this love is seen in the lengths that it goes to preserve and promote unity. Just how faithful is this love? This is love that is willing to overlook and forgive wrongs that are done against me. That idea there, covering a multitude of sins, it's in no way enabling or dismissing sin. Peter here is not saying sin's not that big of a deal, just forget it. It is not love to enable others. We saw that last Sunday night in 1 Corinthians 13. That's not love. This is not someone who ignores or encourages sin. Rather, it is someone who recognizes sin and yet chooses to treat you as if it didn't happen. It is not that this person will never confront you if you persist in your sin, but they will overlook small offenses and not hold them against you. To help us think through this a little bit, hopefully this has never been you, but maybe this has been you. But maybe there's been someone at some point, or maybe you had this feeling towards someone else, who simply, for whatever reason, simply did not like you. They purposefully take offense at everything that you do or say. They look for opportunities to be offended. They assume the worst of you. And they see everything that you do through the worst possible light. They hold on to little wrongs and don't let them go. If you misspeak, they bring it up. They point it out. That's a hard person to be around. That is not a relationship in which love and trust can thrive. And that's the idea here. This is love that does not hold a grudge. This is love that is eager to forgive. This is love that assumes the best. Love that promotes unity. Love that overlooks little offenses. So because the end is at hand, brothers and sisters, love all the more. Love unconditionally. Love each other passionately. Not only pray, not only love, but third, show hospitality. Flowing directly from the fervent love of 1 Peter 4.8 is a generous, joyful hospitality. A willingness to share. Not only your homes, we often think of hospitality in terms of your house, having people into your house, but not, not only your homes, but, but really your lives including people in the normal routines and the rhythms of your life. In fact, I don't think that you can read this. If you're familiar with your Bible, you can't read this passage without having your mind go back to the early church in Acts as described in chapter 2, verse 44 to 45. This early infant church who believed 
All who believed were together, who had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They are living together. There's a cliche you'll get a lot of times in in, in churches these days where it'll be like, we're doing life together. Kind of make fun of that cliche sometimes, but the reality is that that is a biblical idea. That is the idea of hospitality, to do life together, to come alongside with one another, to have people in your homes. This fervent love that Peter here describes not only forgives, it gives, as we see here with hospitality. You see, this is a hard one for us because here in America we are so individualistic. And yet the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be lived in community. We need the constant encouragement of one another. We just went through the book of Hebrews a year ago, maybe. As we work through the book of Hebrews, several times throughout Hebrews, he comes back to the fact that, that yes, these things are important, and you need one another. Watch out for one another. Keep track of one another. Don't let each other fall away. We need the constant encouragement of one another. We need to be challenged by one another. We need to be spurred on toward love, faithfulness, and hope by one another. Day in and day out. The idea of the church gathering once or twice a week and then going our separate ways and having no interaction, that is an idea that is completely foreign in the New Testament. Especially as the end draws all the nearer and the world grows all the more hostile, we need to be hospitable towards one another. I love how Peter throws in that little phrase, without grumbling. Because this is where we go back and apply that other little phrase, covering a multitude of sins. The reality is that hospitality opens up lots of opportunities to love one another by covering little sins. Because the more time you spend with one another, the more time you will offend one another. And the more opportunity you have to love one another by overlooking those. So let me ask you, when was the last time you had people over to your house for a meal? When was the last time you opened your home? When was the last time, maybe if you're not in a position where you can have people over, when was the last time you took someone out for a meal? Or coffee? Not with any necessary agenda on your mind. Just to do life with them. To get to know them. To live alongside them. To get to know them on a deeper level than just Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night in the foyer. How you doing? Good. All right. See you later. So brothers and sisters, because the end is at hand, be all the more hospitable. The fourth one, service, in verses 10 to 11a. This is the final practical application that Peter here draws out, is to serve one another. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You have gifts. You have abilities. You have talents, you have interests given to you by God for the good of the church. 
And you are meant to serve those gifts and those talents and those abilities. You are meant to serve the church with them. In fact, I love that word steward that Peter includes here. A steward is a household manager. The idea, in essence, what Peter is here saying is that the gifts that God has given you, don't think of them as yours. Think of them as God's and you are managing them for him. That changes how you approach serving in church, does it not? Your ability to to speak or to serve or to give, your ability to show mercy to someone, whatever it may be, that's not for you, that is for God. He has given it to you to manage for him, for the good of his church. They are God's gifts, and you are responsible to care for them, to develop them, and to deploy them well for his glory. It is the varied grace of God that has given us varied gifts to his church to meet the varied needs of his church. Your church needs you. We need your gifts. We need your talents, your abilities. In fact, I would go a step further in the light of the language used in this passage and other passages, the idea of a steward, to refuse to use the gifts that God has given you. That's to rob the church. Not only that, but it is to rob God of the glory that he deserves through his church, through your exercise of those gifts that he has given you. To refuse to serve the church is to rob the church and to rob God of his glory. So serve one another. Peter here gives two broad examples, two categories that he kind of places all these gifts in. Gifts of speaking and gifts of doing. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. The first one here, gifts of speaking, I think we we often tend to think of formal preaching or teaching, and those are definitely included in this. But it goes beyond that as well. It includes things such as evangelism, sharing your testimony, giving biblical counsel, even something as practical as singing. When gospel truth is leaving your body through your mouth, you are using a gift of God. You are speaking. When you speak the truth, speak with authority. When you proclaim the truth, Proclaim it with authority. Speak as if it was God's word itself. Understand the weight of the truth. Speak with purpose. Speak with care. Speak with passion. Don't preach or teach or testify, or evangelize, or testify through song. Don't do it flippantly or mindlessly. Do it purposefully and passionately, because when you speak the truth, you are proclaiming the power of God to salvation. When you have the opportunity to serve someone by speaking the truth into their life, do it with authority, with purpose, with passion. 
The same thing with gifts of doing. Here again, think broadly. From deacon ministry to nursery to janitors to the person who changes the light bulbs, runs the sound booth, plays the piano, whatever it is, do it with purpose and with all the skill and the strength that God has given you. Because that is given you to use for the church. For God's glory. Having the right perspective allows you to have the right mindset as you serve. So brothers and sisters, because the end is at hand, be all the more faithful in your service. Finally, we come to our third point. Have purpose. What is that purpose? Keep using the the language of purpose. Do this with purpose. What is that purpose? I see that that, that the time is at hand. The end is at hand. I see the need for urgency. I I see the need for, for passion and faithfulness. But what is the purpose? What is the end? Look what Peter says here in verse 11. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. That what? In all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why is it that we must endure? Why is it that we must have this urgency? Why is it that we must serve with passion? It is because we have a great purpose, the glory of God. Two things to note here. First, God's glory. We are doing this to his glory. That's our purpose. And secondly, God's worth, his greatness, because he is worthy of that glory. Note first, we do this, why? So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Christian, you are living for something greater than yourself. You are living, you are serving for God's glory. As Paul so powerfully proclaims in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and therefore to die is gain. My life is not my own, for you have been bought with a price, the scriptures tell us. You are living for something greater than yourself. You need to understand in this passage in general that your faithful service is not in the hope of getting God's attention. You're not called to faithfulness so that God will look down and say, wow, he's faithful. Rather, your faithful service is in response that all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Because it is finished, we can and will be faithful. God is glorified through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the faithful ministry and testimony of Jesus' body, the church. God will be glorified. And the gates of hell will not prevail. So brothers and sisters, see that meaning. Let the glory of God add a weight to your purpose. But with that, note also that this is because God deserves glory. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why? Because to him belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because he is worthy of our worship. Because he is creator God who made all things. Because he is the one who in eternity past set us apart called us out 
foreknew and elected us. Even as we began the beginning of 1 Peter, and he who began that good work in you will see it to completion at the end of Jesus Christ, at the end through Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of life, God's glory. It is not a wasted life. Rather, it is life lived to its fullest purpose and meaning. Because he is worthy of your worship. For truly to him belong all the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we come to the end of this passage, big idea, bring it all together and sum it all up. May the urgency of the moment fuel the passion of your faithfulness and pursuit of your ultimate purpose, God's glory. Peter's plea in this passage is that the urgency of the moment, understanding that the end of all things is at hand, would then fuel the passion of your faithfulness through prayer and love and hospitality and service, all of that in pursuit of your ultimate purpose, the glory of God. So a few thoughts as we close. Number one, are you living with the urgency of 1 Peter 4, 7? Are you living with the urgency of 1 Peter 4, 7? Secondly, are you loving with the passion of 1 Peter 4, 8 to 11? Included in that word love, I'm including hospitality and service. In light of the urgency of 1 Peter 4, 7, are you loving with the passion of 1 Peter 4, 8 to 11? And then finally, are you striving for the purpose of 1 Peter 4, 11, B, the glory of God? As you ask yourself those, four, those three questions, ask yourself this, what needs to change? How might your life look different this week if you took serious and apply this passage to your life. If you let these things really sink deep and you meditate on these and you let the Lord work through his word and you respond to his call, how might your life look different this week if you lived like this is true? Truly, the end of all things is at hand. So brothers and sisters, be faithful. Live with urgency. Live with passion and live with purpose, the glory of God.